Uh, thanks so much, Chris, for reading that passage. We're back in uh, Luke's Gospel today for a little while, so uh, let's pray together as we come to uh, as we come to God's Word. Father, we thank you so much that your Word is living and active. That even now we hear your voice speaking to us through these words in the power of your Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, please help us not to harden our hearts, but to listen and respond with humility and with urgency. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If an important visitor is coming, you have to be prepared. Uh, Whether it's your mother-in-law arriving tomorrow, as mine is, or maybe the Ofsted inspector at school, or maybe the, the regional director coming to the office, if an important visitor is arriving, you make sure you are prepared. I remember uh, when I'd I'd been a couple of years graduated from Durham, but still living in Durham, and Queen Elizabeth II came to visit Durham as part of her Jubilee, uh, her Diamond Jubilee tour. Preparations were happening for months before she arrived. Repairs were made to the picturesque Prebens Bridge so that her car could cross safely over the river onto the Bailey instead of falling into the river uh, so she could actually get to the cathedral and the castle. Potholes were filled in. Flags were raised. Safety barriers were put up. A special lunch was prepared in the great hall of the castle laid on for lucky students and dignitaries. And they were selected months in advance. I know that because my friend Alexandru, who was a student at castle, was asked to be a guest, along with uh, the then Bishop of Durham, Justin Welby, and the Lord Chancellor of the city. Those are the kinds of preparations that are made for the coming of the Queen. If the Queen is coming... You've got to be prepared. And in our passage this morning, preparations are being made for an even more important visitor, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. The creator is coming to his creation in real space-time history with the offer of forgiveness and salvation. And we need to be prepared. This is a moment of huge international importance. Luke begins this section in chapter 3 by introducing us to all of the big players on the world stage of that time. Tiberius Caesar, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate, the governor. Herod, Philip and Lysanias, the tetrarchs over the territory divided up after the death of Herod the Great. Those are the big political powers. There's also the religious ruling elite, Annas, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the high priest. On one level, that long list of names just alerts us to the fact that these events are not the stuff of myth or legend. This is not once upon a time in a land far, far away. This is real space-time history. You remember how Luke introduced his gospel in chapter 1? He told us that he wrote this carefully investigated, orderly account so that we might have certainty. 
about the things we've been told about Jesus, his life, death and resurrection. This is history that you can corroborate and confirm. But this list of names, it's more than just historical background. Luke is showing us, even though the events that we're going to look at don't take place in the capital city or the royal palace or the king's courtyard, they take place in some back of beyond wilderness. Nevertheless, the public arrival of Jesus Christ is of world-changing, global significance. Because, verse 6, Jesus is bringing God's salvation for all people. Not just for Israel, not just for one group of people, but for the whole world. And the man with the job of preparing us for Jesus' arrival is John. John the Baptist, as most of us know him. John is like the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So on the one hand, John is basically like the last Old Testament prophet pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And his introduction is the same as lots of the Old Testament prophets. During the reign of King so-and-so, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, verse 2. But John is not just the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing forward to the promised coming of of the Lord. He's also the first in the time of fulfillment. John says, the Lord is actually here right now. John is both a prophet and the fulfillment of prophecy. And Luke often introduces the main characters in his story with a quote from the Old Testament that's being fulfilled. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks. Jesus is introduced alongside a long quotation from Isaiah 61. Here in chapter 3, John is introduced as the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. As I say, we know him as John the Baptist. But first and foremost, John is not a Baptist, but a preacher. (laughs) John is the voice calling out in the wilderness, crying out for people to prepare the way for the coming Lord. That's John's role, to help us get ready. John is just the warm-up act, just preparing the way. But the one coming is the real star of the show. You see, if John is the voice of Isaiah then Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, God himself coming to his people. That's why this is so momentous, because Jesus is not like any other world figure. Think about it. The most important figures in world history, they all have the title, the great. Alexander the great, Herod the great, Catherine the great, Peter the great. I think he was Russian. But Jesus is not just another one of those great human rulers. Jesus has a category all of his own. The Lord. He's the one who made us, who loves us. The one before whom we will all give account. 
Jesus is the Lord, the divine shepherd who has come to lead us out of spiritual exile and to bring us home. That's how important Jesus' arrival is. That's why we get all this detail about the guy who's just the warm-up act. And here's how John gets people ready. Verse 3. He preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance. Just like the Old Testament prophets before him, actually. John preaches a message of repentance, calling people to turn back to God. And John must have been a great preacher because people traveled from all over the country into this back of beyond wilderness just to listen to him. But his sermon just had one point. It was a one-point sermon. And so this morning, so is mine. And this is it. You must repent. You must repent. Now, in, in the ancient world, when kings would visit a city, they would sometimes literally build a brand new road for them to travel in on. So say Alexander the Great was returning home from victorious conquest. They would go out into the countryside. Valleys would be filled in. Hills would be flattened. A path made straight and smooth for the coming king. Think of it a bit like uh, the Mall leading up to Buckingham Palace if you've been there. And John, he's explaining to us Isaiah's picture. And John tells us, Make a road. Make a road because Jesus the Lord, God himself is coming. Bringing forgiveness and salvation for all people. Even for you. The only question is, do you want to see God's salvation? Do you want to see God's salvation? Now when we... When we speak of of seeing God's salvation, what, what, what I mean by that is, do you want to see an end to sickness and sadness and suffering? Do you want to see an end to disease, destruction, disappointment, despair? Do you want to see an end to death? Do you want to see a world of healing and wholeness, of perfect peace, of glorious love, of restored relationships? Do you want to see, do you want to experience every burden of guilt and shame being lifted from your shoulders? Every tear wiped away from your eyes of course you do that's the world we all want and John is here to tell us how we can prepare for that what needs to happen if we're going to be ready to see God's salvation and we need to do the spiritual equivalent of building a road we need to repent In fact, you must repent. 
Now, to repent basically just means to turn around. Let me try and illustrate this for you. Um, In our family, Rachel and I have slightly different approaches to using Google Maps. Uh, So Rachel likes to use Google Maps for any and every trip, even if we're going somewhere that we know, because she wants to make sure that we avoid the traffic jams. I, however, I take pride in my natural good sense of direction. And so I prefer not to use Google Maps or or maps of any kind unless I really have to. That means that quite frequently, if we're on a journey to somewhere that we haven't been before, we'll be on the motorway and Rachel will turn to me and say, do you know where you're going? To which I almost always reply, more or less. And unsurprisingly, on a rare, I'm sure it is rare, a rare handful of occasions, the truth is actually less. We end up going down a road and the sign says, you know, some place that we're really not meant to be going to. And with a bit of help from my ever gracious wife, I admit, I don't actually know where we are or where we're meant to be going. I have to say sorry to Rach for my pride and for my error. And then I have to turn the car around so that she and Google Maps can redirect us the right way. That's what repentance is like. It is a real change of mind, realizing I've been wrong, going the wrong way. And it results in a real change of direction. When it comes to God, that means realizing I've been living wrongly. Living without regard for God, ignoring him, sinning against him and others, just going my own way, doing my own thing. And repentance is turning away from that way of living towards God. To use Isaiah's language, it's admitting that my life has been crooked and it needs to be made straight. It's admitting that I've been proud and I need to be brought low humbly recognizing my deep need for forgiveness and rescue. And obviously that's not easy. It's hard to own up to the fact that we've been proudly going in the wrong direction. But repentance is essential if we want to see God's salvation. Listen, the straight, smooth road that the Lord Jesus travels on to bring his forgiveness and salvation is the road of a repentant heart. Let me say that again. The straight, smooth road that the Lord Jesus travels on to bring his forgiveness and salvation into our lives is the road of a repentant heart. There's no other way to see his salvation except through repentance. That is the only road that Jesus will travel on. But I want you to know, this message of repentance, it's not just unique to John and his preparation. It's central to Jesus' message as well. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
In chapter 15, in that trio of parables, Jesus says there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. At the end of Luke, Jesus tells the apostles, this is what is written, the Messiah, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And that means, therefore, repentance is central not just to Jesus' message, but also to the apostles. In Acts 2, Peter preaches to the crowd and they ask him, what should we do? A bit like the crowd do for John in, in our passage today. And how does Peter respond? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the crowd who heard John, they were baptized as a sign of their repentance. It was a physical symbol that they wanted what Jesus would bring, even though it hadn't yet come. For us, now that Jesus has come, we're like the crowd in Acts. We don't just look forward one day to the forgiveness of our sins and to salvation. We actually experience now the real thing from Jesus. We get the substance that they only looked forward to by anticipation. But the gateway is the same. Repentance. Now before we move on, let me just be clear what repentance is not. Repentance is not pulling up our moral socks. Telling Jesus, I promise I'll do better. I'm going to try harder. So that I'm worthy enough to receive your forgiveness and salvation. It's not that. Repentance is not a, a work that you can do to fix yourself up so that you can earn anything from Jesus. Repentance is fundamentally a heart attitude of lowness before the Lord. Realizing I've got it wrong. Admitting our sin. Because he won't receive what he offers unless we know we need it. Repentance then, it's, it's to turn around, not so that we can earn something from Jesus, but so that we can receive something from Jesus. But you can't receive it if you're facing in the opposite direction. Like the parable of the prodigal son, the son doesn't earn his way back into the family. He's freely welcomed home, but he did have to turn around. And it's the same for us. If you want to experience Jesus' forgiveness, if you want to see God's salvation, you must repent. That's the one point sermon. Basically then, the rest of the passage from verses 7 to 20, John explains what repentance is. What it looks like in real life. And very quickly, we're going to see three features of repentance. So you must repent and you must repent genuinely and personally. Genuinely and personally. I think part of the reason that people must have loved John's preaching is how warm his tone is. Welcome everyone to my baptism meeting. It's so wonderful to see you here. 
I hope you'll stay for refreshments afterwards so I can get to know you better. Except that's not quite how John starts, is it? He starts a little bit differently. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You snakes. Children of the devil. Poisonous people. Why are you here? That's what John asks them. And he does that because lots of the people who were coming out to John, they just treated him like a kind of spiritual spectacle. They just wanted to see what all the fuss was about. They had no interest in actually responding to John's message. We're just there for a show. Others were there and they got wet, but they thought that that was the be all and end all, just an outward sign getting wet in some water, but they didn't really acknowledge their deep need for cleansing and forgiveness. In both cases, their repentance was not genuine. It was hypocrisy. And John sees through that respectable religious veneer, but one that has no interest in really repenting. And so John exhorts the crowd, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Show evidence of repentance. Because repentance is fundamentally a heart attitude. It's a change of thinking. But genuine repentance expresses itself in real change. It's not simply to feel sorry or to feel regret. Repentance is not just praying a prayer of commitment once. Listen to me. Commitment does not equal conversion. Commitment does not equal conversion. Just because you or someone that you know prayed a prayer of commitment at some point in the past does not necessarily mean that they were truly converted. The evidence of true conversion, of genuine repentance is fruit. Repentance results in an actual change of direction. Think about the story I told you earlier. If I'm going along in the car and and I, I say to Rachel, well, you know, I don't think I know where we're going. We're not in the right direction. But if I just carry on going anyway, I haven't really repented. It doesn't matter how much I say I know I'm going in the wrong direction. My repentance is not real unless I actually turn around. Repentance must be genuine, and if it is, there will be fruit. Repentance must be genuine, but it must also be personal. Second half of verse 8, there is no use hiding behind religious heritage. Lots of these people, they thought that their spiritual privilege as descendants of Abraham entitled them to see God's salvation. But John tells them, it don't work like that. You might be privileged, but no one is entitled. Your spiritual background has nothing to do really with whether you see God's salvation or not. Your family background might be from the most corrupt, dishonest pagans on the planet. Or your family background might be from among the most pious Christian pastors on the planet. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. 
The thing that counts is whether you genuinely, personally repent. So John tells them it's no use sharing Abraham's DNA if you don't share his repentant faith. Because the people of God, they're not united by family lineage, but by repentant living. Not united ethnically, but ethically. The only refuge from the coming wrath is genuine, personal repentance. It's not about whether your family are not committed Christians. It's not about whether you've always gone to church or not. It's not about whether you pray a prayer of commitment once. It's about whether you have personally, genuinely repented. If you want to see God's salvation, you must repent. But let me say as well, that's not just a one-time only thing. That's not just for the day that you first decided to follow Jesus. Repentance is for every single one of us, every single day. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church to spark the Reformation, his very first thesis was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers would be one of repentance. If you're a Christian, all of life is to be shaped by that continual posture of repentance, turning to the Lord in humility. Because we never move on from need to do that. So we never stop sinning. So we constantly need to be turning to the Lord in repentance, seeking his forgiveness. So let me ask you, does that kind of humble repentance still mark your life today? Not just the day you first decide to follow Jesus, today. You must repent genuinely and personally. And you must repent specifically and practically. Specifically and practically. There are some people listening to John, they're there just for a spiritual spectacle. No real interest in repentance. But there are others who take John's message to heart, who see their own deep need for repentance, who want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Notice who those people are. It's not the religious leaders. No Annas or Caiaphas at John's baptism meetings. The people who come forward to be baptized, who, who want to know what does repentance look like for me, John, it's the tax collectors, sinners, people despised by their society. Exactly the same kinds of people who will flock to Jesus in his ministry. Exactly the kinds of people we should expect to see in church today. Can I just say this? If you expect our church to be filled with moral, decent, sorted people, you have not yet understood what the gospel is really all about. This is not a museum for perfected saints. It's a hospital for sinners who know that they need to repent. 
for people who know their own deep need of Jesus' forgiveness and rescue. And God's salvation really is for all people, verse 6, whoever you are, whatever you have done, past or present, God's salvation is open to you. Repent. Receive what Jesus offers. But the crowd, they, they want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so they say to John in verse 10, what should we do? They want to know what does repentance actually look like in my specific situation. Practically in real life, what does the fruit of repentance look like for a tax collector or for a soldier? And I want you to notice, at no point does Jesus tell them that repentance looks like giving up their day jobs and becoming monks. It's not what he says, not even for the tax collectors. Repentance is not retreating from society. It's going into our society, but living differently, distinctively. And so like a good preacher, John applies the message of repentance to his hearers. And what we see is it's not just about us and God, but between us. It's about our relationships with other people. Verses 10 to 14, interestingly, is all about money or material things. That's the thing that John goes at. It's not that it's limited to that. That's just the practical example he gives to those people. He says that genuinely repentant people are generous because they've experienced God's generosity towards them for giving their sin. Repentant people demonstrate integrity and honesty because they've experienced God's truthfulness and faithfulness. Repentant people are content because they've experienced the way that God provides. And again, it's not that that's a tick list of things to do to get Jesus to accept you. Rather, those things, generosity, integrity, honesty, contentment, they're the natural outworkings of a repentant heart of someone who's turned to God. Think about Zacchaeus, the most famous tax collector in Luke's gospel. When he repents, what does he do? Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What does Jesus say? Today. Salvation has come to this house. His specific practical act of repentance did not save him. But it was the evidence of genuine personal repentance that he was a true son of Abraham. That he had trusted Jesus for forgiveness of sins. So let me ask you this morning, what does this look like for you? What is God putting his finger on? What has he been putting his finger on maybe this last week? In your specific situation, what does it look like for you to live with generosity, integrity, honesty, contentment? 
What would it look like for you to go to work and be distinctive in these ways? Maybe you need to do something about your giving to church or maybe there's someone you know who is struggling to make ends meet and who needs help. Maybe you know a missionary who needs support. Maybe it's just some sin or selfish practice that you need to leave behind. I don't know what it looks like for every single person. I'm not going to start standing here pointing fingers and telling you. John, if you went to see John, he would have done that. But it's a good question to ask someone in your life who knows you. What should I do? Maybe you should do that this afternoon or even over coffee while you're here. What should I do? You must repent, genuinely and personally, specifically and practically. And lastly, you must repent urgently. You must repent urgently. And we have to repent urgently because Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, he brings both, both forgiveness and salvation for those who repent and judgment and wrath for those who refuse. Even now, John says in verse 9, the axe is poised, ready to strike. Jesus could come again at any moment. And every tree that does not produce good fruit in keeping with repentance will be cut down, thrown into the fire and burned. That's a serious warning. Please will you take it seriously? Because when Jesus comes, he comes with a fork and a fire, verse 17. He comes with his fork to separate the wheat from the chaff. To gather into his barn or to throw into the fire. Our destiny is either the barn or the fire. Heaven or hell. Salvation or destruction. Jesus is the holy God and when he comes, the heat of his holiness is an unquenchable fire of judgment for those who refuse to repent. We must repent and we must repent urgently because Jesus is coming. Please do not be like Herod. Herod in verse 20, he heard the call, but he refused. It made him uncomfortable. It got a bit too personal for Herod. And so, Herod, because he had the power to, he threw John in prison. You can't do that to me. But you can do it to the Bible. You can just put it on a shelf, never open it. Close your ears off to God's word, harden your heart to what he says. Please do not be like Herod. Because one day, as Herod found out, it will be too late. You must repent. But here's the thing. We can't actually do this. The, the kind of change that John, that Jesus calls for, is impossible for us in our own strength. We can't do it. Maybe you feel that today. I can't change. It's too late. 
My life is already heading off in this direction. I've made my choices. I've made my decisions like the the tractor that always follows down the same well-trodden path. I'm in a rut and I can't see the way out. That's what makes verse 16 such good news. See, John only pointed forward in anticipation, but what he pointed forward to, Jesus actually brings. See, in the end, John could only get people wet. That was all he could do. Just external. That's why he's so inferior to Jesus, why he isn't even worthy to do the the job of the most menial slave. Because John can only get you wet, but Jesus, he can actually forgive your sins through his death on the cross. The penalty of your sin dealt with. Jesus can actually make you new by the Holy Spirit. So the power of sin is broken. He can actually give you the fresh start you so desperately need. Jesus brings both forgiveness and transformation, a work of God for us and in us. Jesus can both cleanse you and change you if you will only come to him in repentance. In some sense, you have to face the fire either way. It will either be the death of you in judgment, or if we repent, it will be the new birth of us by the Holy Spirit of Christ bringing forgiveness and salvation into our lives. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this call that we need to hear to get ready for Jesus, for your salvation and forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, for me and for all of us here, please help us to heed that call to repentance. Please give us your Holy Spirit to help us, to give us that fresh start that we need as we turn to you. And we pray, Lord, that our lives would be marked by continual repentance. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we we sing,